Well, good morning. As always, I am thankful for this opportunity to worship with you and to preach to you from God's holy and sufficient word. Well, this time I would invite you to please take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And our text this morning is going to be verses 14 through 21. And the title of our sermon is A Minister's Prayer. Let us read the Word of God together. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help as we look to his word this morning. Holy Father, we do bow before you this morning realizing that that you are the giver of your word. And Father, we also realize that if we are to benefit this morning from it, uh, that your spirit must come and and, and empower us and strengthen us to comprehend the glorious truth that your word contains. Father, I pray that you would bless each and every one of us today. That if we are believers, that we would have greater and greater views and glimpses of the glory of Christ. That we would have greater and greater understanding of how, just how great His love for us is. And I do pray if there be any unbelievers here this morning, that they would for the first time see Christ as He truly is, that they would be drawn to Him with an irresistible draw, that they would place their faith in Him, that in so doing, Christ would come and dwell in their hearts. Father, I realize what I am doing and preaching is, is beyond my ability. But we believe in Your Spirit, and we believe that Your Spirit can make this Word effectual in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing uh, once again through our series in Ephesians. And uh, thus we pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Now, as is my custom, I'd like to begin by orienting ourselves to the context before we, uh, before we begin unpacking our text. And I have spent a great deal of time over our past two sermons in this book discussing the context of Ephesians 3 Um, And this morning, I feel like it is necessary to do so again. Now, I hope that I do not weary you by covering the same ground once again. Uh, But as Paul writes in Philippians, to write to you the same things is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so in the same way for me to preach the same things to you is no trouble for me 
and it's safe for you. Well, in the, in the past two sermons, I've made the point that what we see in the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians are three great realities, which are really the answers to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 that we know of as the high priestly prayer. And those realities that we see in Ephesians 1 and 2 are as follows. First, we see the salvation of sinners by grace through faith in Christ, thus uniting them to Christ as their federal or covenant head. And so in John 17, Jesus prays that, that he would grant eternal life to all of the people that God gave him in the, in the covenant of redemption. And that, and that in granting them eternal life, that they would know the Father and know the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see this, this prayer of Jesus answered for us in the realities that we see in Ephesians 1 and 2. Secondly, we see the uniting of all believers together into the one body, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all believers, both Jew and Gentile, are united into one body, which is the church. And so if you remember back in John 17, what did Jesus pray? He prayed that all of his people that are united to the Father would also be united together into one body. He said, I pray that you will be one. And so we see that prayer answered for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. We see that all the people of God are brought into one body. Thirdly, we see the exaltation of the Son. If you remember in John 17, what did Jesus pray for? He, he prayed to the Father, glorify me. And so we see that very vividly in Ephesians 1, that the Son is exalted and He's glorified. But also we see in John 17 that Jesus prayed that not only would people be united to God, and not only would those people who are united to God be united together, but that this unified body would be made one with God, that God would dwell with this unified body. And so we see this being worked out for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. We see this because Christ has accomplished a very uniting of heaven and earth together as seen in the reality of the church. This church, which Christ is the head of, is comprised of redeemed sinners who have been brought into covenant fellowship with God. And not only have they been brought into covenant fellowship with God, but they have been brought into covenant fellowship with all the saints. And it is this body of believers that is being made into the eternal dwelling place of God, thus uniting heaven and earth together. And so, the result of reading these two, these two chapters, Ephesians 1 and 2, is to cause great praise in the people of God. Because in these two chapters, we see the triune God being exalted in the carrying out of God's eternal purposes. We see the, the wisdom and love of God displayed in the salvation of sinners. We see God's wisdom and love displayed in the breaking down of the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And we see God glorifying His Son by exalting Him above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and putting all things under His feet and making Him head over all things to the church, which is being made into the eternal dwelling place of God. This is why William Hendrickson writes the following in his commentary on Ephesians 1 and 2. He says, As a result of the accomplished work of Christ, Literally everything, things in heaven, things on earth, everything around us, everything uh, above us, within us, below us, everything spiritual and everything material has even now been brought under Christ's rule. So that's what we see when we read Ephesians 1 and 2. And so, as I've said the past two sermons, the whole mood of chapters 1 and 2 is that of the victory and the authority of Christ. And so, as the Ephesian believers were reading this, as they were reading Ephesians 1 and 2, 
They were being brought up to heaven, as it were, and as they contemplated on the glory of what God has done and is doing through Christ. But then we come to Ephesians 3 as we begin to narrow in on our passage today. And so in Ephesians 3.1, we see a jarring transition. In chapters 1 and 2, we were brought up to heaven. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we're brought crashing back down to earth as Paul reveals that he is a prisoner. And is this, is this idea in particular that he is a prisoner that is so jarring to the Ephesian believers. So you can imagine the Ephesians as they were reading chapters 1 and 2 and just glorying in the authority and the power and the, and the victory of Christ. And then they come to verse 1. You can imagine them saying the following. If Paul, if our beloved Paul be an apostle of King Jesus, if he be an ambassador of the Lord, and this Lord has all authority in heaven and on earth, what does Paul mean that he is a prisoner? That, that doesn't seem to fit with what has, been, has just been written in chapters 1 and 2. If Christ has all authority, then why is one of his ambassadors in prison? And so, and so Paul, understanding that his readers may struggle with this, stops his thought as we see marked out for us by way of a dash at the end of verse 1, and then proceeds to address the question that was no doubt on the mind of the Ephesian readers. And their question would have been this. How does the Messiah reign if his people suffer at the hands of a conquered world? So you can imagine their question. So how can Christ be the one who reigns if his people suffer? If he has conquered the world and conquered all of his enemies, then how do his people suffer at the hand of his enemies? That's a, that's a very perplexing question. And so that's what Paul seeks to address for us in verses 2 through 12 of chapter 3. And so the Apostle Paul is seeking to protect the Ephesian believers from making a fatal conclusion regarding his imprisonment. That fatal conclusion would be as follows. The Ephesian readers may conclude, perhaps that Christ's exaltation to cosmic rule described so vividly in Ephesians 1 and 2 is a shattered failure since he cannot even protect Paul, his apostle, from custody and various other afflictions. And so, if the Ephesians concluded that Christ's exaltation over all things in heaven and on earth was really a shattered failure, not only would this cause them to struggle when faced with the trials of this life, but they would ultimately be in danger of falling away from Christ altogether. And so, Paul, in love for the Ephesians, seeks to reassure them that Christ is indeed ruling and reigning, and that he is, in fact, accomplishing all of his purposes through his body, which is the church. He does this in verses 2 through 12 of Ephesians 3 by showing the Ephesians that the problem of the division between Jew and Gentile cannot stop Christ's mission, as he has made both Jew and Gentile into one new body. Further, Paul teaches that even in his imprisonment, he is ultimately not a prisoner of Rome, but rather a prisoner of Christ. And so Christ displays his absolute sovereignty and victory even when it seems like his enemies are gaining the upper hand. And finally, we see that Christ is sovereignly displaying his power, wisdom, and authority to the heavenly host, both angels and demons, through the weakness that is the church. It is through the foolishness of, foolishness of preaching the mystery of Christ that Christ is exercising his sovereign rule over all the universe. So with all that in mind, we come to verse 13 of chapter 3 where Paul asked the question, or asked the Ephesians, to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is 
your glory. You see that? So Paul's great pastoral and Christ-like heart for the Ephesians was that they would not lose heart over his suffering, but rather that they would see the love that Christ has for them and that he is using all things, even Paul's imprisonment, to bring the Ephesian believers to glory. And so this is the context in which we see Paul's amazing prayer recorded for us in verses 14 through 21. So what we have in verses 14 through 21 is Paul sharing the heart of Christ and thus the heart of all true ministers of God. See, Paul is aware that he can preach and teach and labor and preach and teach and labor again, but that apart from the Spirit of God moving the people of God, they will not see and they will not hear. And even though the love and the power and the glory of Christ is on display, people will not see it if left to themselves. The love of God in Christ Jesus is intended to be recognized. It's intended to be gloried in. It is intended to be gloried in to the benefit of our souls. It is intended to move our hearts to love. It's intended to draw worship out of our hearts to the one true God. And it's intended to establish our hearts in an unshakable confidence as we realize that if God be for us, who can be against us? So, so the love of God, the power of God is on display for all to see. He has demonstrated His love in the sending of His Son. So it's there to see, but the problem is, so often we don't see it. And that is our great need, is it not? We need above all else to see Christ and to be convinced of His love for us. In 2007, the Washington Post concluded or conducted a sociological experiment at the subway in Washington, D.C., for this experiment, they got one of the most famous and accomplished violinists in the world uh, by the name of Joshua Bell uh, to come and play several songs at the subway during rush hour when literally, literally thousands of people would be present. And, and now jo Joshua Bell was not just any ordinary violinist. Uh, he, he was really one of the, the, the best known and most accomplished violinists in the world. And he regularly was selling out grand concert halls, halls and, and these concert halls, these tickets, the cheapest ticket you can get to a Joshua Bell concert was like $100. So he was one of the best violinists in all the world. In fact, three days before the experiment, he sold out Boston Symphony Hall, and the cheapest, the cheapest ticket was $100. And so he was a, an amazing, amazing violinist. And actually, I looked it up uh, Actually, next week, Joshua Bell is playing a concert in Washington, D.C., and the tickets go for as high as $600. So you get the point. He is a, an amazing violinist. Also, Joshua Bell's instrument of choice for this free concert at the subway was a violin valued at over $3 million. So we have arguably one of the best violinists in the world playing on arguably the best violin in the world, so he came to play this free concert for people at the subway. And he showed up wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a ball cap. And he began playing. And he played for nearly an hour. And after an hour of playing, guess how many people stopped to listen to him? Six people. Out of the thousands of people that, that crossed his path while he was playing, only six people stopped to listen. And only one person recognized him. And he had a, he had a box or uh, put out, you know, people put money in, uh, street performers. And guess how much Joshua Bell earned for an hour of playing? 
He made $32. This was a man who's used to making $1,000 a minute for playing. And after an hour of playing, he made $32. And at the conclusion of the experiment, the Washington Post wrote the following. They wrote, People often look without really seeing and hear without really listening. If you would look back to verse 8 of chapter 3, where Paul says, as a minister, his task is to do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So brothers and sisters, this is the great burden of the minister. On the one hand, I know that every time I attempt to preach Christ, that I'm going to fall short. I will fall short in describing the unsearchable riches of Christ. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. And so because I know I cannot preach Christ to the fullest extent that He deserves to be preached, this is a great catalyst for me to study hard, to pray much, and to give my best effort to preach Christ well. But a minister has another burden as well. The minister has the burden of knowing that although he can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, that he can hold forth Christ to the people and plead with the people to look to Christ, to be satisfied with Christ, and to look to Him and to live. And yet he knows that apart from the grace of God, people will look without really seeing, and they will hear without really listening. And this is, I believe, this is what's on Paul's heart as he begins his prayer in verse 14. He knows that he can preach Christ. He can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. But people can hear it and not really hear it. And they need the grace of God. So let's look together now at a minister's prayer on behalf of those to whom he ministers. Verse number 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So the first thing we notice in Paul's prayer is his posture of humility towards God. A minister is first and foremost a servant of God and as such understands the creator-creature distinction. God is the sovereign king and we are his subjects and as such we are to come before him in humility. Now, Paul could mean here that he literally bowed his knees and no doubt Paul probably did often pray with his knees bowed. But there were likely other times that Paul prayed where his knees weren't bowed. So I don't think what he's doing here is, is prescribing for us a, a particular physical posture in prayer. But he is prescribing for us the only proper heart posture before God, which is to bow in humility before the Holy God. <clears throat> Secondly, we see that Paul addresses God as Father. And this is very instructive to us with regards to prayer. Paul recognizes that in love, God has predestined him for adoption as a son through Jesus Christ. And so this high privilege of sonship is something that Paul is keenly aware of and thankful for. And so brothers and sisters, may we never, ever, ever lose our amazement that if we be in Christ, that God is our Father. We have been blessed with, with the highest privilege possible. We've been blessed with the privilege of the sonship of sonship to God. So that means if you are a Christian, you are a son or daughter of God. He is your father. And so Paul bows his knees before the Father. And this leads us directly into verse, thir- uh, verse 15, where we see the fatherhood of God over all of his people. Verse 15 states, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this verse is one of those verses that's very difficult to translate 
which is as, as evidenced by the fact that there's a lot of different translations of this particular verse. Some translations render this verse as from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Some like the ESV translate it every family, but if you have an ESV, you can, you'll notice that it provides a footnote where it says that this verse could also be rendered from whom all fatherhood. So instead of saying every family, it, it could also be rendered from whom all fatherhood. Uh, the NASB translates this verse as every family, but puts in its footnote that it could be also rendered whole family as opposed to every family. Well, after thinking through this and considering various commentators, I am of the opinion that the best translation here would be from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Because Paul has labored to show us in Ephesians 2 and 3 that in Christ there is one household and one body, and so it is only right to conclude that what Paul has in mind here is that there is one family of God of which he is the Father. Calvin writes on this verse, There is but one family which ought to be reckoned, both in heaven and on earth. If we belong to the body of Christ, and so Paul's prayer makes it clear that he believes in the concept of the Catholic or universal church, which consists of the whole number of the elect, both those already in heaven and those on earth. And so his prayer is to the Father, who is the Father of all of his people, those, both those who are in heaven and those who are on earth, who make up the one family of God. Then we come to verse 16. And we now move to Paul's actual petitions. Verse 16 reads, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in your inner being. And so we see that his first petition is that the Ephesian believers will be granted the grace of spiritual strength in their inner man. But before we look at the actual content of this petition, we would do well to see how Paul seeks to lay hold of the grace that can only be found in God. When we do this, we notice two things. That when we pray, we must have proper views of God. You see here that as Paul prays, his prayers are constantly reciting truths about who God is. We saw that in Psalm 9 this morning. We've already seen that in chapters 1 and 2. Um, if you notice in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, we see this concept of the riches of God. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1.18, we see the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. In Ephesians 2.7, we see that God saves us so that in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so, in Ephesians 1 and 2, He's, he's laying out this, this truth, this reality that God has all riches. That His riches are, are they, they cannot be exhausted. You see that? And so when He comes to ask His petition in, in Ephesians 3, what does He do? He recites the truth that God has all riches. And it's from those riches that, that he, he, he knows that God is able to grant His request. Our confession puts it like this in describing who our God is. It says that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And so the point being here is that the riches of God's glory are infinite. There is no limit to His riches. There is no limit to God's ability to bless. We, on the other hand, we're limited by our ability to bless, are we not? 
If you came to me for help, I could, I could help you, but only, only to a certain extent. I could help you for a little while, but then my, my resources would run dry, wouldn't they? Then I have nothing else to give you. But that's not so with God, is it? God is infinite, and His riches are infinite. And so His storehouses are full. And so He can give and give and give and give, and He will never have less than He had when, when He started. So the riches of His glory are the basis of God's confidence that He will grant the Ephesians what He asked for. And so we see on the one hand as we pray, our minds need to be informed properly on who our God is. This is why right theology is absolutely essential in the Christian life. If you didn't know who this God was, if you didn't know He had all riches, He was infinite, then you probably wouldn't be so inclined to pray that He would give you things, would you? Of course not. But if you know who this God is, you know that He has all riches, that His riches are infinite, then that would give you great confidence in prayer, would it not? But you have to know that before you can pray that. So that's therefore right theology is essential to the Christian life. Secondly, we see in Paul's prayer that faith believes that God is for us and that if that be the case, then we can lay hold of the fullness of our God to meet our every need. So it's one thing to believe that God's riches and glory are limitless. It's good to believe that. We ought to believe that, right? But it's quite another thing to believe that God not only is able to bless us, but that He is willing to bless us. So if God had all resources to give anything He wanted, and you could not, never uh, exhaust His resources, but He was unwilling to give you those resources, that would do you no good, would it? But, but Paul knows that not only is God sovereign and has all glory and the riches of His glory are limitless, He's also a God of compassion and love. And He desires to give good things to His children. And so we see here in verse 16 that what lays at the foundation of Paul's petition is a belief that God is both able and willing to grant His request. Now what is it that Paul asked for? Well, he asked that the God of all glory, who has limitless resources will give to the Ephesians strength in their inner being. Now, now what kind of strength is Paul requesting God to give them? Well, this is a spiritual strength that is to be given to the inner being or the inner man. Now, what is meant by the inner being or the inner man? Well, I think verse 17 gives us the answer to these questions. Verse 17 reads, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And so the strength that Paul is praying for on behalf of the Ephesians is that, they, is that they would have faith, which is, as our confession puts it, an evangelical grace. The confession states that the grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled, which is another word for strengthened, whereby the elect are strengthened to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And so this statement in the confession is just verses 16 and 17 of Ephesians 3 worked out for us. We need strength in our inner being. What is the strength we need? Faith. What is our inner being? It's what the Bible calls our heart. And so when we believe upon Christ, the Spirit of Christ, Christ dwells in our hearts. And when the Spirit of Christ dwells in our hearts, this leads to love. S.M. Ball writes, The whole of verses 16 and 17 taken together communicates that Paul prays for the Father to strengthen the Ephesians through His Spirit so that the Son may dwell in their hearts by faith. 
Redemption, redemption from sin and guilt and salvation from divine wrath is by faith alone. But genuine Christian faith is never alone. It necessarily issues in love towards God and one's neighbor. So Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would, would be granted the grace of faith, whereby they may be united to Christ, and that as a result of this, they would be rooted and grounded in love. The aim of Paul's ministry was always love. And thus here we have the heart of every true minister of Christ. We preach with one great goal in mind, that as you hear the preaching of the gospel, that the Spirit of God would grant you, to, grant you with strength to believe in Christ, and that by believing you would be united to Christ, and as a result of this, you'd be, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. So every time I, I preach, or Pastor John preaches, or Pastor Thomas preaches, that, that's our goal. We are preaching so that you would see Christ, that you'd be granted strength to believe in Christ, and that by believing in Christ, you, you'd be united to Him, and that in your union with Him, you would be made to be a lover of God and a lover of your neighbor. That, that's the whole goal of the minister. And I think it's important here that in Paul's, that Paul's desire, that we see here, that Paul's desire is that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in love. He didn't say rooted and grounded in truth, or even rooted and grounded in sound theology. Now that's not to say that we're not to be rooted and grounded in truth, but rather what it communicates is this, that being rooted in the truth by itself is not enough. Pastor, Pastor Thomas has shared that his daddy, Pastor Roland, used to use the analogy of a gun barrel. He would say that your theology can be just as straight as a gun barrel, but it can be just as empty as well if you have not love. And so the minister's heart in preaching is not that you would just know right theology, that you would be able to, to quote back and, and state proper doctrines. Now, it is our desire that you would be able to do that, but that's a means to an end. And the end is love. And so the minister's heart and desire for when, when we preach is that you would know good theology, but this theology would lead, lead you to loving God and loving others. Now we move to one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, which is verse 18. It says, These saints who are rooted and grounded in love, he prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Paul prays that these Ephesian saints who have Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith and who are rooted and grounded in love would then be made able to experience the fullness of what is theirs in Christ. And I think this clearly shows a true minister's heart. You see, a minister desires that you would have more than just a weak faith that barely gets you by. No, a minister wants the, wants the people that he ministers to to be ever-growing in their knowledge and amazement of just how blessed they are as a result of being brought into a covenant relationship with God. And so Paul's prayer is that the Ephesian believers would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, commentators have a myriad of views on what these four descriptive words are referring to. But the most trustworthy seem to agree that these four words, breadth, length, height, and depth, are referring to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I believe that is the most natural reading of this text. 
And so that is the view that I feel very confident in holding to, that the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth is speaking about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, what is the significance of these four words? Well, first we see the word breadth. There is a breadth to the love of God in Christ. Now, why does Paul want the Ephesians to understand the breadth of his love? How does that truth, that there's a breadth to the, to the love of Christ, how does that bring comfort and confidence to our souls? Well, for one... There is a breadth of sin. Romans 5 states that as sin came into the world and death has spread to all men because all have sinned. And so sin has spread to the whole world because all have sinned. There's a breadth to sin. But not only is there a breadth of sin in the world, there is a breadth of sin in my own life. Sin has spread to every aspect of my life such as there, that there is not one area in my life that has not been stained by this dreadful enemy. And you know that, be, that to be true. Sin has touched every part of your life. Everything. Your thoughts, your actions, your words, your motivations. It's spread to everything. And so there's a breadth to sin. And so what comfort is afforded to my soul in comprehending the breadth of Christ's love? Well, much comfort, brothers and sisters. There is a breadth of sin, but love covers a multitude of sins. Christ's love is broader than my sins. Although your sins are wide, Christ's love is wider. And not only is the love of Christ broad enough to cover all my sins, His love is broad enough to cover all the families of the earth. The broadness of Christ's love reaches to a people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. And that is a wonderful reality to grasp. And so... The hymn that we sang earlier aptly put it. If the whole sky were made into a parchment, it would not be broad enough to contain the breadth of Christ's love. So there's a breadth to Christ's love. And that should be a comfort to our souls. But not only is there a breadth of Christ's love, there is a length. Now what comfort is afforded to our soul in comprehending the length of Christ's love? Well, do you recall Ephesians 2.13? Where it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, the arm of God's love is not shortened. It can reach the farthest sinner and bring them near. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today is this, are there any in this room who are far off from God, who are estranged from God? Well, take heart. The love of Christ is long enough to reach you and to bring you near. If you place your faith in Christ, if you call out to Christ, His arm is long enough to get you and to save you. But that's also true not just for the, the person who's not saved, who's estranged from God, but what about us? Do we not wander from God at times? Do we not stray from God? either through our sin or the neglect of the use of the means of grace. Sometimes we stray far from God and God, God feels very far from us. But the love of Christ is, is, is a long love. There's a length to it. 
It can reach you. If you, if you turn to Christ, it will reach you. And so that's a great comfort to our souls. You can never get too far away from Christ. His love is longer than that. Not only can Christ, not only is His love long enough to reach you, but Christ's love is also long enough to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Now that is a long love, isn't it? We, we should comprehend and, and dwell on the reality of the length of Christ's love. That no matter how far you get away from God, He can reach you. And that once you are Christ, He can remove your sins so far from you that you can't reach them. And they can't touch you. Therefore, there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because your sins have been taken so far away from you that they can't touch you, they can't hurt you. Further, as we consider the length of Christ's love, may we ask how long Christ's love will last for us. So there's a length in the sense that we can't get too far away from God. There's a length in the sense that He can remove our sins far away from us. But there's a length, there, there's a length also in the sense that His love never ends. There's no time limit on the length of Christ's love. It lasts for eternity. So the length of Christ's love is an eternal love. And so not only is there a breadth and a length to Christ's love, but there is also a height. Now what comfort is afforded to your soul in comprehending the height of Christ's love? Well, Ephesians 6.12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against wicked spiritual forces in heavenly or high places. Brothers and sisters, our spiritual enemies are higher than we are. We can't overcome them by ourselves. But dear ones, the love of Christ is higher than our enemies. The, the Ephesian believers saw firsthand the height of Christ's love in the fact that he, that he also overcame the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentiles. That wall also was a, a, a wall too high to overcome. But Christ's love was higher than that wall. And he brought down that wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And finally, dear ones, there was a chasm that once separated you from God. There was a divide that existed between you, the sinner, and a holy God. And there was nothing that you can do to span that gap left to yourself. You couldn't jump high enough. You couldn't even build a tower high enough. There was nothing you could do to reach God. It was too high. But Christ's love is higher. Have you ever needed to reach something high uh, and you needed a step stool? If you didn't have a step stool, it's kind of a helpless feeling, isn't it? You can't reach it. Or if you're uh, working and you need a ladder and you don't have a ladder, well, tough. You, can, you ain't going to be able to get the job done. Or if you've got a ladder that's too short, it doesn't do you any good, does it? But in Christ, we have a love that is high enough. Christ is a ladder that spans the gap between us and God. There is a height to Christ's love that is sufficient to meet our need. And so there is a breadth, there is a length, and there is a height to Christ's love. But there is still more for us to comprehend. There is also a depth to the love of Christ. Now what comfort is afforded to your soul in comprehending the depth of Christ's love? Well, brothers and sisters, we all know something of the terror of the deep. David writes of this in Psalm 69 where he says, Save me, O God, 
For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in a deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. That's a terrifying thought, is it not? Mm -hmm. To be in a deep mire and to be sinking, but there's nothing solid under your feet and you keep going down. There's a terror to to being in, in deep waters. And so David knew the terror and the helplessness of sinking into the deep with nothing to stop him from going under. But David also knew the depth of Christ's love. He writes in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. And out of the miry bog, he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So everyone in here who is a believer knows something of what David experienced. Isaiah 51.1 puts it this way, that this is a common experience for all believers. It says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock which you were hewn, or from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. And so remember the depth of Christ's love that saved you. Quite literally, you have been saved from hell. And I can't think of a deeper place than that. You have been rescued from the deep, dark, deep darkness of spiritual death. But there is a depth to the love of Christ, as the hymn says, this love reaches to the lowest hell. And so, if you are an unbeliever, it doesn't matter how low you have sank into sin and unbelief. Christ's love is deeper than that. Trust in Christ and He will save you. Believer, comprehend the depth of Christ's love for you. In this life, you may be, and I should say you probably will be, brought very low. You may be brought to the brink of despair. You may be weighed down by sadness and depression. You may walk in deep valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, there is a depth in Christ's love that can reach you. As it says in Romans 8, 38 and verse 39, it says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So brothers and sisters, I pray that God would grant you strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, before I move forward, I must take a moment to draw your attention to Paul's statement that his prayer was that we would comprehend with all the saints. Now, one of my fears is that oftentimes that we, we read this, this verse and we, we, we apply this to our, to our own individual hearts. And that's probably where most of our minds were at just a few minutes ago. As we were thinking about the, the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of Christ's love, we're thinking about His love for us as individuals, that He has saved me, that He has reached me, that He has brought me who was once far off. He has brought me near. Now, all that is absolutely true, and we ought to think in that way. But He also adds that phrase that you'll be able to comprehend not just individually, but that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. And so what is the significance of this phrase? 
all the saints? Well, I think it is twofold. First, our pursuit and enjoyment of God is not something that we engage in by ourselves, but rather this is a corporate endeavor. This means that not only do I need to be given strength in my inner man to trust in Christ and then to comprehend the extent of His love, but my brothers and sisters in Christ also need strength to be granted to them for this very same cause. And so I should be praying for my brothers and sisters as I myself seek grace. And further, as God and His grace grants me greater and greater glimpses of the glory and love of Christ, I should be seeking to stir up my brothers and sisters to see the same. Isn't that the heart that we see in Paul? That's what we read in Ephesians 3. It says, the first half of Ephesians 3, he says, this great mystery of Christ has been revealed to me. But he doesn't stay there, does he? Because in the second half, what does he do? He says, says I, I'm, my goal is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So it wasn't just that, well, he received this revelation from God and that was, that was good enough for him. He wanted everyone to see the glory of the mystery of Christ. And so the same is true in our pursuit and as we seek to comprehend the love of God that not only do, do we comprehend it, but we want everybody else to comprehend it too. And so we need to be praying that our brothers and sisters would also comprehend it. And as we are given greater and greater glimpses of the love of God, we ought to share that with our brothers and sisters to stir them up to also seek for this very same thing. Secondly, this phrase, all the saints highlights the reality that God is more glorious than any one saint can comprehend. To behold, the lo- to behold the glory of God and the love of Christ is something that the whole of the church is engaged in together. In other words, this is, this is something that's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. We need strength together to comprehend. And that, that's one of the great catalyst for missions. You remember the hymn where it says, In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound, to, uh, the sound, I can't remember how the hymn goes now, sorry. But basically, in vain the firstborn seraph, he's, tries to, he's trying to sound the glory of God. He's, try, he's trying to worship God. But he's a firstborn seraph, he's the first one. And he realizes he can't do it by himself. He's trying as hard as he can. He's singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty but he cannot give God enough glory by himself. That's the catalyst of missions. I cannot love God enough by myself because God is infinite. He is all glorious. So he's not like us. So for example, we can love a person enough. I love my wife. And I don't need any help in that. I've got that. I I can do that on my own. But I can't love God enough. I can't love God enough by myself. I need your help. And that's what Paul is praying for here. That the saints would be able to comprehend the love of God, the glory of God, and that they would also love God with Him and give Him glory. And so this seeking and pursuing Christ is not an individual affair alone. It is a corporate endeavor. So then Paul moves in in verse 19 to state the end goal of his request. Verse 19 says, And to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he states that I am praying that God would grant you strength to comprehend His love for you so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what does that phrase mean? That's one of those phrases that's kind of hard for us to understand. What, what does it mean that we can be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, again, I think here the corporate nature and reality of the church is in view. There is not one person where all the fullness of God can dwell in one person. That's not, it's not, this is not an individual thing that's being talked about here. It's corporate. Remember back in chapter 2 of Ephesians where it stated that the church was the household of God, which was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And it says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so Paul's request in verse 19 is this, that God would fill His new creation temple, that is the new covenant church, with His glorious presence through the Spirit. Remember in the Old Testament, remember the tabernacle? Moses erected the tabernacle. And what did it say happened? The glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. Remember that? Then later on, there was a temple built. Solomon built a temple. And the glory of the Lord filled that temple. Well, we know later on, eventually, that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. But in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel sees a vision of a, of a glorious new creation temple that will be filled with the glory of God. If you would turn to, Ephesians, or to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 4 and 5. And what we're going to see here is that the, the primary theme, the main theme of the book of Ephesians is about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about us as individuals. And I think this will be worked out for you as we, as we read this together. So Ezekiel 43, verse 1 states, Then He led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the, by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so as we come back to Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 19, what he's praying here is that you, the church, this new creation temple, this household of God that is being built together to be a dwelling place of God, he's praying that you, the church, will be filled with the very glory of God. That you be filled with all the fullness of God. And so as we glory and look at Christ and what He's done, as we glory in the, in the, in the, in the great love of Christ, for us, that it is in and through that reality that God dwells in the midst of His people. 
is in and through that reality that His glory fills this new creation temple, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads Paul to his doxological hymn in verses 20 and 21, where he says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So again, his request is what? That the glory of the Lord would fill His church. That the glory of the Lord would fill His new creation temple, which is the people of God. Now, why was this prayer so important and instructive to the Ephesians and consequently to us today? Remember, the Ephesians were hearing about the glory of Christ in chapters 1 and 2. And then they were jarred by the painful reality that, that Paul was in prison in Ephesians 3.1. And so Paul, in seeking to protect the Ephesians from losing heart, as we read in verse 13 of chapter 3, launches into an explanation of the fact that his imprisonment was not a sign of a failure in Christ, but rather that Christ was the, was the author of his imprisonment and that, in fact, Christ was completely in control and as a result of His sovereign love, the Ephesian believers have been made a part of the new creation temple, which is the church comprised of Jew and Gentile alike. I know that was a mouthful. But that's, that's the glory of God. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. It's hard to, to put into to, to neat sentences the glory of what, the, what Paul was seek, seeking, to, seeking for, the, the, for the Ephesian believers to see and to understand. So he reminds them that it is through the church, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known and that they have a great privilege in being included in this great enterprise and this great reality. In other words, now I'm going to try to boil it down some. In other words, Paul's great desire was that the Ephesians would be able to see beyond the physical and temporal realities of this fallen world and to be able to really see what God was doing in Christ through the Spirit, in the building of His kingdom, which is the church. And that's what we need to see today. We, we, are, we oftentimes, we, we, see the, we see physical realities. But what Paul is reminding us here is that there are, there are unseen realities that are greater than what we can see with our naked eye. That God is doing things that are it takes the very grace of God to be able to even comprehend what He's doing. And so what does this mean for you today? Well, it means this in short. If you are a believer this morning, you are more blessed than you can possibly imagine. And therefore, my prayer for you is that God would give you strength to comprehend with all the saints the greatness of the love of God for you in Christ and that this would result in the following for you. Number one, that you would love God. We love Him because He first loved us. And have you not seen the love of God this morning? Yes. Then love Him. Secondly, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And especially that you, would, that you would love those who are part of the household of God, which is the new creation temple or dwelling place of God. If God be for you, 
if His love is so great for you that He has saved you and He has brought you into this, to, his, to His dwelling place, and, and all the fullness of God is, is in you as the church, then you are absolutely freed up to love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? You have no excuse to not love your neighbor. If God has loved us in this way, should we not also love our neighbor? It's kind of similar to you know when uh, Jesus taught about you know, if God has forgiven you this much, and he, get, he forgave this man a, a great, great debt, and then that man wouldn't forgive a small debt that somebody owed him. And he said that, that, was, a, that was a horrible thing, a wicked thing, and that this man would be cast into hell. As you comprehend the greatness of God's love, can you not love your neighbor as yourself? Third, that you would have an unshakable confidence in God. That you would know that no matter what happens in this life, that no matter what you go through, no matter how much it feels at times like the darkness is overcoming the light, that you would rest in the reality that God is building His new creation dwelling place and there is nothing that will stop this. I said earlier, there are unseen realities. There are realities that the world knows nothing of. They can't see it. They're blind. Amazing grace takes those blinders off, does it not? If you would flip back to Ephesians 1. Notice verses 8 through 10. It says that God has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what, what's Paul saying in those verses? That as a result of your salvation, that you have been made aware, you've been, you have been brought into the light, and you are, made, you, you are one who now knows this great mystery, this great purpose of God, which is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now what is that referring to? referring to the church. Remember when we started the sermon? That Jesus prayed that His people would be united to God and that that those people would be united together into one body and that that one body would become the dwelling place of God, thus uniting heaven and earth together. If you are a Christian, you've been made aware of that reality. And not only aware of the reality, you've been made a partaker of that reality. A one who benefits from that reality. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, then there's nothing in this life that can cause you to be discontent. Does it make sense? The question is, do we really believe that? The church is the biggest thing going. The world is absolutely blind to that reality. But what God is doing in building His church is the main thing. It's the main thing. And you're a part of that. It's, it's an amazing reality. And that's the whole point of the book of Ephesians. For us to see the, the glory of what God is doing through His Son Jesus Christ in building His church. Which is and will be the dwelling place of God forever. So brothers and sisters, what we have in Christ is greater, far greater than what we realize. So let's pursue Him together 
And let's endeavor to fully benefit from all that Christ has accomplished for us. In short, let us glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we have just heard Your Word preached, Lord, I am keenly aware that I have fallen short to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Lord, Your love is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. But Lord, You also have promised that through the fullness of preaching that You would save and sanctify Your people. So I pray that You would take what has been said today, that You would cause that which was unprofitable to be forgotten, but that which was according to truth to be, to be implanted deep in the souls of every person here, that they would have strength to comprehend the depth, the height, the breadth, and the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to love You more. Help us to love our neighbor more. And Lord, help us to render worship to You as the only one who deserves worship. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing uh, hymn 159. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus.